Okay, well, it looks like it's recording, so let's hope it works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Oh, uh, here it is. I see it now. It says it's recording on this end, too. Okay, perfect. Oh, I don't know why my dog is now crying. Can you hear my dog cry? Is that what that was? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to say she's okay, so she doesn't end up on the recording. Hang on a second. Yeah, okay. Uh, today seems to be the day of just random technical difficulties. Hi, I'm Clement Lou, and welcome to the third season of Just Sustainability. I first met Ray Burns almost a decade ago when he was hired as the director of the Native American Student Success Program at the University of Minnesota Morris. In the intervening years, Ray's also served as the president of Leech Lake Tribal College and the Tribal Partnerships Manager for the National Science Foundation's established program to stimulate competitive research in North Dakota. In the time that I've known him, I've come to discover that there's two things that I really enjoy talking to Ray about. The first of these topics is science fiction, which is the topic that is perhaps outside the scope of this podcast, though I certainly can think of folks who definitely use science and speculative fiction to examine equity and sustainability. The second topic is one that's certainly appropriate to share with you here. That topic is how higher education might be changed to be better informed by Indigenous worldviews and to better serve Native students. For the next couple episodes, I'll share a conversation that I recorded with Ray a couple years ago. Without further ado, here's how Ray introduces himself. My name is Ray Burns. I am president of Leech Lake Tribal College, and I have been involved with tribal colleges in particular for about 15, 20 years, and Indian education for going on close to 30 years now. Um, I grew up in North Dakota and went to a public school in North Dakota. And from North Dakota, I went to uh, Dartmouth College in New Hampshire and have been involved with higher education and Indian education in particular almost by accident. Um, Mm -hmm. My goal was to be a lawyer. And um, what wound up happening was uh, after I went through college and got my bachelor's degree, uh, they didn't have pre-law, so my major was officially comparative religions, but that's that counts as pre-law for the college I went to. Um, I took some time off and really took a look at myself and just started taking odd jobs. And then I fell into a, um, a position um, working as a counselor for high school students getting into college. Huh. And from that, it just seemed I kept each subsequent job, I just seemed to keep getting into uh, more and more Indian education-focused um, jobs. And, and then I got a position at um, the Tribal College in Northwest Wisconsin, um, the Lukutare Ojibwe Community College. Okay. And um, from there, it was just, I just, you know, it just seemed like every two or three years I'd get promoted upward you know, director of financial aid, dean of students, and then was interim president for a while. Um, And then I had to take some time off um, to do hospice care for my mother. And then I got a job at um, Northwest Indian College in Bellingham, Washington, as 
director of admissions and financial aid. Uh-huh. And so I was there for three years. And then I wound up at Morris for two and a half years um, working with their Nasante uh, program with Native American Student Success. Uh-huh. And then three years ago, I was um, offered the position as president at Leech Lake Tribal College. Listening to Ray talk about his winding career path and the many ways that he's worked to make higher education more accessible to Indigenous folks, let me to ask him about the objectives and principles that guide his work. With so much experience, I thought he would have good ideas about what folks should be working towards and strategies to work towards those objectives. He certainly didn't disappoint me. Have there been any objectives or like principles or values that guide your work? Like, why do you do what you do? Like, what are you, uh, you know, what are you aiming to accomplish? Well, I, I primarily um, I want to be the person that makes a difference in the lives of students and gets them to a spot. Um, that's better than they were before. And it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you know, the, the, the definition that, uh, that colleges and the department of education define as success Mm -hmm. uh, for, for students. Uh, But where the student, the person is in a better position of where they are or where they were. Um, That's kind of one of my guiding principles. But then my other principle is that, Um, I'm sadly still a rarity in the education field in that I'm a Native American student who has um, um, an advanced degree. Um, I have a master's degree and I'm working um, diligently to getting my doctorate. And there are still very few um, Native Americans with advanced degrees in the in the education community in particular, but just in general. And it kind of behooves me to be that person that then can share the knowledge and information that I have um, with people, uh, with mainstream society to kind of break down some of the stereotypes, but also to kind of move away from that colonial type mindset of uh, you know, victor versus loser, that type thing, but more a, you know, here's where we're, where we can share ideas and work together, um, better. So that's kind of my guiding principles. It's just, um, helping students and then, uh, sharing the knowledge, um, that I've, um, happened to have accumulated over the years. Mm-hmm. So there's two things in your answer I wanted to kind of follow up on. Uh, the first one was uh, you mentioned that uh, Native Americans are still really underrepresented in higher ed in terms of folks with advanced degrees. Um, I guess one of the questions to, to ask about that is like, do you have any ideas like why? Like, do you have any thoughts about why that's the case? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, why? Why is it that right? You happen to be one of those folks. That right, why is it so unusual to have folks that have advanced degrees that are native? Like, what are some of the factors you think that are 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 leading to that being the case? I think there's several. Um, I think part of it um, stems from um, kind of an implicit bias um, from from education, uh, especially starting in K twelve, where native students are seen as the other. And so because of that, their viewpoints are not respected with regards to, quote unquote, mainstream society. So, 
you know, a perfectly valid answer from a uh, first or second grader that lives in a reservation community would not be seen as a valid answer uh, in a quote unquote mainstream community. So there's that they're automatically um, taught to undervalue their own culture to succeed in the mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think part of it too is uh, just opportunity. Uh, most tribal people live Okay, I got to be really careful about how I say this. <laughs> a large percentage of tribal people live in um, areas that do not have access to higher education or the background for higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are brought up in communities that uh, the higher education standard may not be the same as um, somebody who is like, you know, coming from Blake uh, in Minneapolis, Uh, you know, and, and, you know, and that's not necessarily a fault of just Indian education. I think rural education in general suffers from that same sort of um, blind spot. Uh, But I think that's a big, that's a big factor as to why there aren't as many um, students in uh, higher education. And I think the other is just that it is really expensive to get a degree and the amount of loan debt um, gets to be too much for students. And and most Native people who go into higher education don't take the jobs that are the, you know, multi-million dollar a year type jobs. They take the, uh, you know, they work in fields like well, education, um, <laughs> social services. And so the amount, you know, they just don't see a way that the amount of money they will make in their career will be enough to compensate for the amount of debt that they'll incur. Um, and again, that's not just, you know, for Native students. I think that's a, a factor for a lot of students, especially from underserved um, locales. Um, so it does make it a really, uh, you know, a tough road uh, for a lot of Native students. And then you've got Native students who come from uh, urban areas who, you know, who have the access, but at the flip side, they don't have the same access to the cultural groundings of students. So there's a whole another dynamic that goes on there is that uh, a lot of the numbers you see for Native students um, um, are self-reported Native students. Um, so there actually may be a lot more quote unquote native, um, students with a higher, with the higher degrees, but they just don't report themselves as native. So I guess that's a good segue to the second question, right? So you had also spoke about wanting to provide service to students. Uh, I'm guessing, right? The implication is getting the service that you might not have gotten when you were a student. Uh, right. So like, how, how do you do that? Like how are how do you approach being of service to students? Well, the hardest part of being of service to students is getting the students to recognize that they may need service. Um, students, I think, um, have notorious blind spots about, uh, you know, going into school. They're, they're not aware of the full range of what's offered in higher education. And so part of that is to give them that information that they need 
um, to make the informed decision. Okay. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, it, it really is just uh, getting students to the part um, where they feel comfortable asking the question. Um, and, and a lot of students that are native are also first generation. So they don't have that database of uh, family members or community members that they can go and ask the question when they're feeling uncomfortable going to a dean or somebody to ask the question. That's an interesting thing that I've noticed, right? So students uh, who come from backgrounds that like perhaps need the the least support, right? Like the students that are well represented in higher ed uh, have no hesitation uh, using services, right? I think they have that cultural understanding that in many ways, when they're a student, the institution is there to serve them. But like, you know, students who right could make best use of those resources or students who are underrepresented or students who come from marginalized backgrounds um don't have that sense that right, institutions are meant to serve them and so don't realize that there's they should come for at, like you know to request things of the institution exactly um you know and one of the things i heard when i worked at morris in a program specifically for first year students was i don't want to bother them um, right. That was a, a good reason students didn't want to go talk to people. And it's like, but wait, your tuition pays their salary. Uh, their job is to be there to answer the question. You don't, you're not bothering them. They want you there. And it's just getting over that psychological hurdle of, you know, of, of being able and willing to ask the questions. So what are some of the strategies you've used to like try to get that to happen? Like to, to get students to feel more comfortable uh, reaching out and like actually making use of the, the services that they're paying for the services that, you know, that other students are using, but the students who, who right the, the services might be actually be targeted at or aimed at, or would, you know, be the most helpful for are not recognizing that those services are theirs to, to pursue. That is actually the hardest thing to do when talking with students is just getting them to that point. And the strategies that I've used and continue to use is, you know, sometimes I will walk with the student to the person they need to talk with and say and introduce them and say, OK, here you go. Talk, um, you know, because I think part of it, too, is that students look at certain offices and people on campus as, um, you know, larger than life figures and really demystifying that and breaking them, breaking it down to where there are people you can talk with becomes probably one of the most important factors um, for a student being comfortable enough to go and uh, answer, uh, ask the question. Um, and I think it's one reason kind of on a tangent, but very related to this, how uh, faculty of color tend to be overutilized by students as a gateway into the college. Um, I think it's very often, if a student sees somebody that looks like them, they will go talk to them, regardless of whether or not that's actually that person's job. Um, so I think that's why you see a lot of faculty of color have a tougher time of it because they're not only doing the job that they're hired to do and supposed to do, but 
but they're also kind of this in limbo status where they're this uh, intermediary between the student and the other offices in the college, which may not have a, a person of color that they can relate, that the student can relate to. Um, so it really, it, it actually really becomes more relational um, in a way for students to access that. And especially for Native students. Native students have a very, um, if the, especially if they, if they have any tie to their traditions, there's a very strict method of respecting the knowledge carriers. And, you know, it's, it, it's a very precise way of dealing with it. And in a lot of ways, it runs counter to what higher education uh, expects from students. And so it's kind of this weird dynamic, of, uh, especially those students who have a more traditional upbringing, to get them to understand that in this particular case, they can they can do things a little different, are 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 really just say this is a different way of showing the respect um, that the position uh, entails. Um, it it's complicated. <laughs> There's no yeah. doubt about it. Talking with Ray about the strategies that he uses to help Indigenous students, as well as students of color and first-generation students, to recognize that the resources on campus are theirs to access, let me to ask him about the cultural framework and the assumptions that inform higher education in the United States, and the role of tribal colleges in challenging and expanding that framework and those assumptions. Just thinking about higher ed and thinking about equity in higher ed, one of the things that seems really clear to be the case is that higher ed is without, I think, sometimes our conscious awareness, really culturally loaded, right? So like uh, higher ed uh, in the United States is really has a, a particular cultural framework, right? We tend to try to think we're rational, we're, we're objective, we're enlightenment, but right, that is a particular way of thinking about the world and what's seen as rational and what's seen as like enlightenment is based on a particular culture, right? Like a culture that's very uh, Anglo-American, um, and yeah, so like, I do think like recognizing that things are culturally loaded and that folks with different cultural perspectives and different cultural assumptions might think about education differently is something we need to be better at, which is going to, was my long bit of transition because I'm so <laughs> bad at these due to asking about tribal colleges, right? So that, I think that's one of the really cool institutions or sorts of institutions in the United States that does marry this, right? This academic culture, this uh, I don't know, Anglo-American sort of educational like history with a, a more uh, indigenous culture and like finding somewhere in between where right it helps students navigate from uh, a more indigenous mindset into a more Western academic mindset, but yet still maintaining the, like right that that the kind of truth and authenticity to the indigenous mindset. So could you say a little bit about tribal colleges? Cause I assume that a lot of folks are not going to be as familiar with them as they should be. So like you say a little bit about what tribal colleges are and like what makes them distinct from, uh, you know, other universities and colleges. Okay. Yes, sure. Um, well, tribal colleges are, are a new phenomena. Um, they've only been in existence for just over 50 years. Um, we have two institutions, our uh, um, three institutions now that are on their 50th year, uh, Sintagliska University, um, Diné College, and Oglala Lakota. 
and we've got a few more that are about to celebrate their 50th year. So that's a very short time uh, in terms of existence as education uh, in the educational field. Um, when you've got some institutions alone that are like 250 years old and things like that. Um, so we're very young institutions and we are chartered by the tribes themselves, um, rather than, um, through any agency or anything like that. The tribes themselves decided, um, that, the education of their own people was something that was best done by themselves um, rather than shipping people off to other uh, schools or school districts because um, another part of um, tribal colleges is the access point. Tribal colleges are located on reservations or near reservations, and there are very few educational institutions near some of these reservations. So it allows students um, to stay close to home. Um, but the primary focus of tribal colleges is, is to integrate the culture and language of the tribe or tribes that chartered them into the curriculum so that the students receive not only um, the mainstream curriculum, uh, but also receive the validation that their own culture and their own language uh, is also of academic importance. Uh, so it becomes, you know, the institutions themselves uh, have to be fully accredited. Um, and we all are um, through the, you know, Higher Learning Commission or whatever the other ones in the West are. Um, <laughs> and so we have to pass all those standards while at the same time remaining true to the mission, which is to uh, keep everything grounded in the language and culture and values of the tribe um, that has chartered the institution. Um, and it's, uh, it really is a, when you look at it, a Herculean task for a college to try to do, basically serve two masters um, mm -hmm. at the same time you know, the accreditation standards, but also the tribal cultural and language standards. Um, so it becomes a real, you know, dance to figure out how to integrate, for example, um, the culture of the Ojibwe into, um, say, science. How do you do that? Um, and really what it's created is a whole new level of integration of indigenous um, cultural language into traditional curricula uh, to make that a little bit more standardized. And for some tribal colleges, it is um, very much, uh, we offer language and culture, uh -huh. and then we, tr we try to integrate it as much as possible. And for some other institutions, it's every single activity on campus is intrinsically tied to the language and culture of the tribe that it's uh, that it's in. And that's not to say the smaller, the other institutions aren't doing the same, but it's not to that same ultimate degree because the other side is then we also have to have met the standards of um, accreditation. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it, so that's what tribal colleges really do is try to, form this bridge between mainstream education and tribal language and cultures um, in such a way that students can benefit from both 
at the same time um, and use one to inform the other, you know, in either direction. It's, yeah. So, it's oh, very ambitious. <laughs> it, is, no, it does. It's, it sounds very ambitious, right? I mean, I think you describe it dance. I, it does seem that way, right? Like uh, from just hearing you've talked about it before and like hearing other folks talk about it, right? Like uh, it sounds rather fraught dealing with accreditation while trying to deal with a, a cultural mission. Yes. And one of the things that I have to say is that um, as accreditation agencies have matured and seen what is happening and how tribal colleges exist, they are starting to realize that in a lot of ways, tribal colleges kind of embody that ideal of what a quote unquote community college um, once was. Mm -hmm. And that is an institution that is. intimately connected to the community that they're in, you know, and I'm not to say there aren't community colleges out there that do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of ways, accreditation has kind of created these cookie cutter institutions right. and has kind of moved away from that. And now they're starting to realize that when they do that, they, it, it's a disservice to the students and to the communities. And so now the, the pendulum is starting to swing back a little and, you know, for all the issues that colleges of our tribal colleges have had with accreditation, the one area that tribal colleges have always been applauded by accrediting accrediting agencies is mm-hmm. um, honoring mission and vision and um, taking care of its students. No, Those are the two areas that no, no, we've no. all have excelled in. Yeah, no, that's really clear, right? Having been to various uh, campuses around here, including yours, right? And just seeing, right? So like higher ed always talks about being student-centered, particularly like smaller universities and colleges, but tribal colleges take it to an entirely whole new level. Yes, it, it, it is something that becomes almost, um, it, it's really difficult unless you experience to explain it. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, I'm president of a college. Mm-hmm. Um, my door is open to students at any time. And, and that's true. Uh, you know, I have, um, well, pandemic not, notwithstanding, <laughs> I generally have two or three students um, a day stop by my office. Uh, you know, and they just walk in to talk. I don't think there are many other institutions of higher education where you can walk in and talk to the president like that. Yeah. Uh, All our offices are like that. Um, You know, I I applaud Morris for their one-stop offices. I think it's a great idea, Uh Uh, but that is a tribal college overall. We're we're one stop, (laughs) you know, and it's like, if, if, if I don't know the answer, and sometimes I don't, even though I'm president, I'm not up to date with every single rule and regulation. I have no problem walking with, in, you know, the student to the financial aid officer and say, hey, can you help out? Um, or going to the faculty member or going to, uh, you know, the um, registrar or whatever, mm-hmm. um, just to make sure that the student gets to uh, where they need to go because, you know, the the most important contact that you have with a student is when they're right in front of you, mm-hmm. and it's really tough. Uh, and that and that's something that's just ingrained as uh, as the way we operate at tribal colleges is that if a student is in front of you, you help them. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, and it goes to like even small things, right? You you talk mostly about policy and service, but like, uh, I, I, don't, I can't remember which college it was at. Maybe in Red Lake. It might actually, but it might have been actually Leech Lake. And I was talking to someone, uh, and I sat down in just a random chair, and I'm like, wow, this chair is like super comfortable. And then like that actually spurred them to talk about like the decision making process for like deciding the chairs and like how it was actually really important because they they wanted the furniture to be really comfortable so that like folks would feel at home. So that like whoever came on campus, like when they sat down, they would realize that like they that the the university or the college cared about them and like the universe and the college thought about like, you know what would be the most comfortable and then thought about like, you know, like body diversity and recognizing that, you know, there are heavier folks and like, you know, they would, we needed seats that would like work for all like, you know, body sizes and shapes. And I was like, huh, you know, I, I don't know if that's true for most uh, institutions of higher learning that that sort of attention to like be thinking about being welcoming and be like really being, you know, not just like student folks, but just like sort of like people focused, right. Treating folks as people in relationship with that you're trying to like do well for. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, and again, it's that it becomes a dance too, because we're tribal colleges are notoriously underfunded. So at the same time as we're trying to do that, we don't have the same funding um, access that other institutions have. So, uh, you know, I know that uh, for instance, um, the college that I used to work at in Wisconsin, Le Couture, um, we had a, uh, we opened up a new building and we needed chairs and the chairs are expensive as heck in <laughs> institutions of higher education. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Uh, yeah. Uh, my spouse had to yeah. order a new office chair and it was like 300 bucks for like, from the, the, the supplier that the are right that University of Minnesota Morris uses. I was like, what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the level of comfort is directly linked to the amount you really need to pay. Um, so comfortable chairs cost a lot of money. So what we did is we had a local um, woodworker who said, "I can make you a bunch of chairs," and it was like it would have been about probably a quarter of the price that we had ordered through uh, through the regular you know, distributors. So we did it that way. And we got, you know, it wasn't only cheap, but the chairs were comfortable chairs. And, yeah, you know, it's that sort of innovative ability um, that tribal colleges have, that ability to change on the fly, that I think other institutions are kind of envious of. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have, we're not part of any system or anything like that. So if we need to make changes, we can make changes and we can do them quickly. You know, I know in some institutions, you come up with a good idea, you have to report it to a committee, the committee makes its recommendation, recommendations gets kicked upstairs, and then three months later, you know, it's like approved. And by then, it's like, okay, <laughs> did I actually come up with that idea? Yeah. Um, you know, but with like, at a tribal college, it's like, okay, we need to do this. All right, let's do it. Can we get it done? Um, we'll have to check cut tomorrow. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that shows in uh, in a lot of the things tribal colleges do, right? Because one thing that struck me uh, about a lot of tribal colleges, it's the use of technology, right? So, like, I think now with, uh, you know, uh, with the Rona, everybody is, like, more online capable and, like, classrooms are much smarter than they used to be because folks have had to do more streaming. But uh, tribal colleges were there about five, six years ago, right? Yeah. I, you know, and that, I mean, one of the things that 
was the biggest dichotomy um, is that when the Rona hit, um, and, you know, we all had to convert to um, as much online as possible. Yeah. Um, you know, most tribal colleges don't have a very robust online program. They're face-to-face because that's kind of our mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had to make that switch. And most institutions were able to do it within a week, week and a half um, to make the switch over to mm-hmm. the point where um, our creditors were like, okay, that's good. You you did a really great job. Thank you. And that's part of that is that without even realizing it, we have kind of inherently built into our structure that ability to make the changes quickly um, once you recognize that the change needs to be made and doing it in, as what's the word cost effectively exactly cost effectively as possible um, yeah. so you know it was like at the the initial startup it was like okay we need to switch to online what's a free online service we can use because we can't we couldn't afford at that time to, to use any of the pay services right you know and you know, Zoom is a great online service, uh, especially we consider it's free mostly, um, especially from the um, user standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we incorporated that, we're using it. And even though now we could probably move to a different platform, um, Zoom is still doing what we needed to do. So we're going to stay with it. Um, but that, I mean, but like you say, it was just that, that, ability to change is, is and be flexible is already built into the the DNA of the tribal colleges. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's not just the DNA. I think it's also the infrastructure, right? So, like, uh, I noticed right, years ago touring uh, uh, tribal colleges, seeing that a lot of tribal colleges had rooms where they were able to stream pretty easily because uh, uh, of, like, agreements that they had with other colleges and to provide like online content, right? So like there were a lot of, uh, the rooms were like better equipped than most uh, other universities and colleges. Yeah. And that's kind of that double-edged sword of not having, of being under-resourced um, is that sometimes we get the resources. So we immediately do everything we can with it, even though we don't have the full infrastructure in place to take advantage of it. And then we spend time um, trying to figure out the best way to use that. Um, so we did have the infrastructure in place to go online, um, but we've just never used it. And you know, and now that we've done it, we see that we can do it. The tribal colleges, especially Minnesota, are starting to talk to each other and say, "Wait a second, you know, mm-hmm. we re- we get into the situation because of our low enrollments where we have to offer classes that are have." two or three students in them in order for them to graduate. So we have to offer them. But when we compare with the other tribal colleges, they're offering the same classes. So why can't we share that, you know, that class between um, the three or four tribal colleges? And so instead of four teachers teaching, you know, 12 students, we have one teacher teaching 12 students, which is a lot more cost effective. across you know across the um you know uh, across the from the financial standpoint mm-hmm. um so it, you know it, it, it's you know the silver lining in the incredibly dark cloud of um the pandemic is that it's allowed us to really start thinking 
outside the box that we've been put in and be able to do things. Uh, I'll give another, uh, I'll give a great example. The Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe mm-hmm. um, has amazing programs, um, but, you know, they're all regional, are all, you know, in-house. And then because of the um, coronavirus, they, you know, they had to start offering them online. Yeah. And then they began to realize we have all sorts of classes that we can now offer online, not just to, you know, the students here, but we can open it up, you know, and have another section for uh, students across um, the country. Right. And so now they're having issues in terms of um, staffing the number of, uh, you know, they're having to cap uh, the number of students that are in these courses because, you know, these are really really top-notch um top-notch courses taught by uh you know really influential um native authors and artists and um you know it 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 just goes to show that you know if if a good idea shows up and we have the ability to use it that's one of the things like i said tribal colleges can respond quickly uh to these things and uh, Institute of American Indian Arts is uh, is taking advantage of that, and it's something that I think other tribal colleges are going to start taking advantage of more as they realize that some of the classes we offer are classes that other people would want to take uh, away from uh, the registered students. Yeah. So it, it's it's an interesting time. I mean, this is interesting, right? Like, yeah, uh, adversity does sort of drive innovation. We've reached a good point in the conversation to end this episode. So far, we've learned about who Ray Burns is, what he's tried to achieve during his long career working on improving accessibility of higher ed and tribal colleges. Please join me again on the next episode of Just Sustainability, where I'll share more of the conversation that I had with Ray. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute and the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.